everybody, and welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Walker. Dr. Walker has been involved in the sport and performance psychology field since 1983, when he began as at the Human Performance Laboratory at the University of Colorado. He is board certified with the Association of Applied Sports Psychology and is a member of the United States Olympic Committee's Registry of Sports Psychologists. Over the years, he has developed mental training programs for several accomplished athletes in a wide variety of sports, from professional and Olympic levels to high school and club teams. Additionally, he's an expert at supporting coaches, parents, and promising young athletes as they strive to realize their potential. Outside of his practice, Dr. Walker is also the editor-in-chief of Podium Sports Journal, a very well-respected sports psychology blog. And today, Josh and I are going to talk to Dr. Walker about preparation and preparation routines as they apply to tennis. In other words, we want to help all of you to be competition ready. We hope you enjoy this very lively and engaging conversation with Steve Walker. It is my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Stephen Walker to the Tennis IQ podcast. Dr. Walker, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys, Brian, Josh. So glad to uh, be a part of your program. Thank you. And I, I know this is going to be fun. And the reason Josh and I wanted to have you on was specifically to talk about preparation, preparation for success, and especially mental preparation. Um, you know, you've recently put out a, a new download from your website uh, entitled 12 Keys for Unleashing a Great Performance. So I want to make sure that we go through that. Um, and I want to make sure that the listeners, Check that out. We'll put a link in uh, the show notes to make sure that people can can download that because, um, quite frankly, there are a couple of really cool stories in there of athletes that you've worked with um, and, and how using pre-performance competition routines, et cetera, really helped them. Um, but before we jump into that, Dr. Walker, I'd love to have you introduce yourself to the Tennis IQ podcast audience You know, with some of your background in sport and sports psychology and coaching and so if you could just go through that for us briefly. Well, I, I think, you know, any of us, every one of us in this group, you know, probably started out just as an athlete doing what it is that you want to do. You know, youth sports, kids sports. Uh, I played tennis. I was a major sprint. I was a major swimmer when I was growing up. And I somehow had a facility for these these kinds of sports or strokes that were from a motor skills development, pretty tough to handle. So I swam butterfly and, uh, you know, and I was, I was taking on uh, different kinds of activities where I learned how to project myself into somebody else's body and at least have an instinct as to what may, may be involved in whatever their, their sport is. Uh, from there, you know, I played through high school and I played football and I did all the traditional sports, which, you know, were okay. But I was also a musician, so I played uh, electric guitar and I was a rock and roll singer and I did all that stuff. And and uh, I had, basically the intention was, let's just have fun. Let's do what we want to do and hope we don't mess it up. And so that was where it all came from. Um, when I got into sports seriously, um, I, through high school sports, 
that was uh, that was the lead-in. But I had an opportunity when I was going to graduate school at the University of Colorado. Uh, I got my doctorate there, and I it's kind of an odd little story, but I was I, I was used to play full court basketball when I was getting my doctorate there. And uh, it was something that I did every single day. It was my stress relief. It was my blow off steam. It was my get away from it all. It was all of that. And there was a, a day where I had to go to the bathroom really bad. And I mean, it was really bad. And and so they, I had two flights of stairs to go downstairs, but I knew that there were classrooms upstairs. And so if I could just get to the classroom bathroom, then I would probably be just fine. Well, I go upstairs and I'm wandering down this hallway and I go to classroom to classroom to classroom to classroom. There's no bathroom. <laughs> and I'm going, geez, give me a break. And then I wander into this cavernous place that I'm going, holy mackerel, what is this place? And I'm looking at treadmills and I'm looking at balloons and I'm looking at VO2 max setups and I'm looking at uh, a hot tub with a scale on it. And, you know, and, and I'm just absorbed by these oscilloscopes and, and this voice rings out from behind me. What are you doing here? I jump, come down, land on my feet, I turn around, I see the silver-haired guy who's got a frown on his face, he's not happy, his privacy's been intruded, I've, I've wandered into his cubicle, and he turns out to be the most wonderful human being I met, and I worked with that man for 20 years. He was uh, Art Dickinson of the Human Performance Laboratory, and he cut my teeth on so many things. And so you never know what's going to happen when you're looking for a bathroom. So, <laughs> That's the moral so of the story. Don't, don't assume that just because you've got someplace to go that you know what's going to happen when you get there. And uh, so – he was the guy that really got me introduced into all the cardiac fitness stuff, lipid profiles, VO2 max training. And this goes back to 1976. So this guy was definitely uh, one of the premier researchers. He was a, a big guy with the uh, U.S. Olympic uh, Training uh, Committee and um, just – Wonderful, wonderful human being. So from there, he introduced me to Jerry Quiller, the track and field coach. He introduced me to Mark Simpson, the golf coach. He introduced me to all of these different coaches. And the next thing I knew, I was rotating around the, the uh, athletic department, uh, working with different athletes on different specializations. A lot of it was just stress-related stuff to – try and prevent, you know, their inability to melt down or just even perform under pressure. But then above and beyond that, it went to the, the kinds of things that were way more specifically dialed in to how they get themselves ready to do whatever they're going to do. And for, I know you guys, 
look, you guys are tennis gonzo guys, <laughs> but in tennis has got some very, very special preparation requirements because it is a combat sport. And, you know, it's mano a mano, you know, I mean, it's, it's really not that much different than, than wrestling, except you've got a racket and you've got a ball, but it's either you or it's him. And, you know, everybody wins a point and you got to win the games and then you got to win the set and then you got to win multiple sets. And, and if you're on, then great. But if you're not, not so much. And so the, the streakiness and the moodiness that come in with the, with the sport can be really pretty significant. So anyway, that's what I was learning about tennis and what I was learning about sport and getting engaged in it. Um, but uh, let's just pose for a question there and see what you got going, what, what you think you may want to talk about next. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I appreciate your perspective on tennis. I would agree it's a, it's a, it's a combat sport. And one of my favorite quotes about, about that is from the famous tennis writer Bud Collins who called tennis boxing without bloodshed. And, it's, you know, it's well, exactly there's some what bloodshed it is. too. I've seen plenty of that. But, <laughs> yeah. but perhaps not as much as boxing, right? And I think that's one of the aspects, though, I think that is difficult for tennis players to understand about the, the fighting and the combat piece is that the physical consequences are not as dire as they would be, say, in boxing or mixed martial arts. Um, and therefore, a lot of the focus tends to go internal rather than on the opponent and how I'm going to do that. And I, and I think that is something, you know, when we think about preparation, that's a key aspect of understanding, you know, a certain level of tennis IQ. We, we had on a coach, Jorge Capistani, who talked about the three levels of tennis IQ. And, and Josh and I, you know, were fully on board with this and how the, that highest level of tennis IQ is not about you. It's all about the opponent and you using your strengths to exploit their weaknesses. Yeah. Can I, let me touch on that for a little bit because sure. I tend to view it maybe a little bit differently than you guys do. Um, when I watch Nadal and I watch Djokovic and I watch these guys, um, there's tennis and then there's what they do and, and what they do. So one of the things that is really big for me in terms of preparation and, and get is a getting people in sync in their body. Now, my definition of being in sync in your body is having your mind and your body in the same moment, in the same place right now, in that nanosecond, which is now. So since the mind tends to travel so much faster than the body, you'll find a lot of people that get caught up in future think, and they get driving into, well, what if this happens? Or what if that happens? Or what if, you know, what's the guy next going to do? Or, or you'll have you'll have made a mistake and you go, God, gee, you know, I could have, should have done this or I should have done that. Or, you know, uh, you know, what's wrong with me? You know, what's going on. And this is the scenario where people have too much time to think. I remember Jim Lair would, 
would do his thing where he'd talk about the 16 second cure, you know, and you're going back to the fence, you know, and you're playing with your strings and you're trying to get yourself calmed down and you settle and then you turn around, you go back to the service line and you're ready to play. Well, these guys don't do that. I mean, they, they will, they will change up the tempo. They'll change up the pace of play. They'll change up what they're doing, but they are so in the nanosecond, which is now that their attention is solely on their body knows what to do. They're not even talking to their body about what they want to do with it. They just know what to do. And that is an order of magnitude in speed and reaction time and attention and focus that is like otherworldly, in my opinion. I mean, you watch these guys and how quickly and how efficiently they play the game. They just, the ball's going where the ball's going and they know where it's going to go. And they did every little nanosecond thing they needed to do in order to get it there. But for most of us, that's not the case. You know, most of us, People have way too much time to think about it. They have way too much time to judge, to evaluate, to, and and so it's a it's a different ball game at these levels. You know, it's a real real uh, significant challenge to to do that properly. So anyway, what what you guys got to take on that? What's your what's your thought on that? Because the speed of the game is unreal. No, and we've we've talked about that. I mean, we uh, in one of our recent episodes, you know, we talked about Nadal and Djokovic um, with a specific emphasis on the French Open final. Um, and uh, no, I I mean, w- with what you're saying, with these guys are just at the top of their craft and have been winning championship after championship for so long that for them it is second nature at this point, and they maybe don't have to go through the same process of getting themselves in that right mindset point after point where maybe the player who's number 50 in the world or the player who's number, you know, 1500 or the player that's number 70 in new England for their age group um, would have to, or the three, five player. Um, So I think, you know, the, the, as we talk about um, preparation and as, you know, for the remainder of the the conversation, it's just for our listeners, you know, this is, this is for the, the that other 99.999% of, of humans out there that, right. that aren't guys that, like that me. Don't yeah. raise the super, super human levels day in and day out. Um, because I, I know that, you know, we, um, through your work and, you know, we, we want to talk about um, preparation and, you know, you've, I know we know you've done a lot of, of work in, into this area. Um so I guess, you know, in, in terms of mental preparation, um, how do you start to how do you start to break down that process in terms of what an athlete ought to be doing as they prepare for a performance? All right. Um, great segue. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I'm going to start out with a level of simplicity that I think does a decent job of introducing the topic. And that is what I think an athlete is in control of. So 
I think an athlete's in control of three things. And the very first thing is their preparation. You know, what are they doing to warm up? How do they fuel themselves? Did they sleep well the night before? You know, part of it's body, part of it's fueling, part of it's whatever. But the bottom line is they've got to have some sense of preparation. And some people can be more extreme than others and they can, you know, they can actually observe their opponent playing so that they get some ideas about what they're going to do and how they're going to attack this or, you know, are they going to change their rhythm up or how do they hit? What's the pace of play that like, are they full of garbage shots? You know, are they, what do they do? You know, what do they do? And that all goes into preparation and knowing what to expect and having a good sense as to what to expect. Then in tennis, and more so than in a lot of sports, you know, you better be on it. You know, you can't be lackadaisical on the court. You've got to be able to move. You've got to be able to move efficiently. You've got to have an effective split step. You've got to be able to be on your point with your serve. You've got your toss has got to be good. Your movement's got to be good. Your, you know, serve and volley's got to be good. Whatever it is that you're doing. Your effort to be able to get to the where you want to get to the ball. Have you ever seen anybody move more quickly than Rafa? I mean, the guy is a beast. He will run down anything, anywhere. Doesn't matter if it's on clay. Doesn't matter if it's on hardcore. The guy is just a beast. And that doesn't take anything away from Djokovic or anybody else, it's just that this guy is otherworldly in that, in that experience from, from my observation. And I look, compared to your level, I'm still an amateur in terms of how I look at these things, but you know, it's noticeable and it's worth, you know, paying attention to. So that preparation effort and then attitude. Because the attitude goes into their willingness to try things on, their willingness to experiment, their willingness to see how the tempo of the match can change according to the kinds of shots that you're hitting. You can start out with a match where the pace of play is just, you know, through the roof. And then you can change that up to where, you know, you're giving somebody something that they're not expecting that maybe they don't want to have. You know, I, I've seen a lot of people, particularly at the high school level, where they'll start out and they'll play with a, a pretty quick pace of play and they see their opponent playing garbage tennis. And the next thing they want to know is, you know, they're doing they're doing a lot of spin shots that they completely altered the tempo of the game and and they start outlasting their opponent because they can. And so, you know, it, these kinds of things that go with their attitude and the way they play that lead to the strategies for how is it they're going to, going to win in this combat sport, because it is a combat sport. It's either you or them and every shot counts. So 
that's really big for me in terms of preparation, effort, and attitude. And when I look at athletes that are fully prepared, and I look at athletes that are, you know, they are really, they're so prepared that they can handle anything that's coming at them. And those athletes are unstoppable. I, I don't see anything that is a weakness in what they're doing because they are unstoppable. And then you have an athlete that maybe isn't on their game or they've got their B game that day or worse, they've got their C game that day. But I've seen people win with a C game because, you know, they were able to keep their opponents off balance that, you know, they did what they needed to do in order to win. But, you know, that whole aspect of this ability to alter their game and to be on point with their game, even if what their game was their their B game or their C game. So if they are in control, they're they're really unstoppable in my view. However, if they're out of control, they're not having very much fun that day. And they have a hard time being able to do most of anything. You know, it just doesn't fit for them. Things aren't clicking for them. And those are the kinds of things that, that make people crazy. And it makes coaches crazy. You'll see these coaches sometimes in the stands at, at uh, you know, any venue where, you know, you've got the five coaches and the family and the entourage and all of that. And everybody gets, you know, freaked out when something's not working right in that. Even the ones that are. So anyway, and I, I do, uh, I have another thought about this preparation that for athletes that are more sophisticated, that, you know, have really been working at it for a while. Uh, I call this thing called P5 thinking. Now, P5 thinking in my mind is there are five criteria for knowing what you want to do when you're going into any competition. And almost all of it involves preparation. But, you know, purpose all, you know, what's your purpose? You know, what do you really want to accomplish? What's your goal? What's your game? Why are you doing this? You know, what is your why? And for people that really know what their why is, you know, because it's the most fun that they've ever had. They really like being able to play at a level of mastery. It, it helps them reaffirm the sense of who they are and that they're capable of doing something at a very high level. I mean, that purpose and being able to play with, you know, a purpose drive is huge. The second one that I, I focus on is that they've got to be productive in virtually every aspect of what they're doing. They can't be wasting time. They can't be just flipping around. They've got to be on point for whatever it is that every move that they make is productive in some fashion or another. And even if what they're trying to do with that move is to throw somebody off, they have a purpose behind that and they're productively engaged in the specifics and how they engage, how they engage it. Uh, I also find that there are people 
that when they are really attentive to the possibilities of what they want to achieve in that, they're willing to experiment a little bit. And, you know, at the levels that, I mean, even at the highest levels, you'll have people that will be experimenting. But when you're looking at college tennis, or you're looking at high school tennis, or you're looking at, at anybody that's playing above a 4-0 level on, on a USTA rating system, well, these people, they're experimenting all the time. And so what are the possibilities that they can do something that maybe they couldn't do yesterday? Or, you know, they're on point this time. Um, there's a level of passionate that they have to be able to play with. They got to love it. If they don't love it, they're not going to play for shit. You know, excuse me. Is it okay if I use a yeah, periodic that's fine. obscenity? That's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't mean to, you know, if it's a kid rated PG deal, maybe, maybe they're not going to track this anyway, but um, in any, in any case, the passionate, and the the owning it, the wanting it, the being there, the fully engaged in it, the you know, see it, drink it, feel it, you know, all aspects of it are are huge. And then probably the single most important, which is the hardest single thing to do for most of the tennis players that I've seen, is to keep it positive in a frame of mind. Because it can turn on a shot, you know, it can turn on a double fault and it can turn on who's in your audience. So I worked with a guy who's actually not too far away from where you guys are. And he was playing high school and he was a very, very good player. He actually won in Colorado. They have, 3A, 4A, 5A, you know, different size schools dictate the the depth or level of competition that people have. So he was he was playing 4A tennis. And in his freshman year, he won the state championship. I mean, he was really a hot shot. And he was having a lot of fun and loved the game and, you know, was playing year-round and all of that. Well, his sophomore year, he lost in the finals. And that was frustrating to him because he didn't expect to lose. He was supposed to walk away with this match. And so he loses the match. And then in his third year, he's playing again, and he gets to the semifinals of state. And he is fixated by his father, who is sitting up in the upper corner of the stands doing this. <laughs> Shaking his <laughs> a lot of body language. Yeah, not helpful. And and he's looking at him doing all this stuff. And then he double faults four times in a row to lose lose the match. Wow. And he decides at the end of that match, well, he and tennis are having a parting of ways. We're 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 not gonna do this anymore. You know, I'm sick of this game. I don't want to do this. And he never, ever confronted his father. And this was the first time I'd ever seen his father in 
an observational match where his kid was playing. But his mom understood that in his best days, he really loved the game. And so she is the one that contracted for me to see him. And when he walked in the door, he walked in the door with his sister, who also played, and he was done with the sport. He didn't want to do it anymore. He had no idea why he was there. You know, he was just there because his mom made him go. And I'm gone. Okay. You know, so tell me, just give me one example of when you had fun. You know, I mean, when, when, when was a good, a good, a good day? And I mean, he started talking and he was slow to get into it, but when he got into it, his speech pattern picks up, his posture changes. He starts getting excited about what it is that he was doing. And he realizes that maybe he doesn't hate it so much, but what he really hates is when his dad is making judgments on him all the time. And I mean, all the time. And so he needed to take control over his support system or he wasn't going to play tennis for long. So enter the next session where dad comes in and, and I've got him prepared Say, we're going to hear about what it's like for your son when you're in the audience and he's watching you, watching him. Because I guarantee you, when he's watching you, watching him, he's not thinking about what he's doing. He's thinking about what you're thinking about what he's doing. And that takes him into a whole nother avenue. And by the way, tennis isn't what he's thinking about. He's not planning his next shot. He doesn't have any sense of strategy for what he wants to do. He's just worried about what you're thinking about how he's playing. And so he's completely separated from that. And so every pre-performance routine that anybody gets into, they have to examine what's their why. And they've got to be able to own it. And if they can, and they do, and they will, Sky's the limit. I mean, to whatever their 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 God given talent is, and in the level of the game that they play. But at least they're not getting in the way. You know, this six inches between the ears isn't isn't messing it all up. And that's usually the problem, isn't it? So that's... that guy, that guy, just I, I got to do a postscript on that guy. So he ends up, he ends up, you know finishing that season and he decides that a he needs to get away from his dad and b he goes to a place where he's got a friend that's also training and he goes to the IMG academy and he starts you know training there and suddenly he rediscovers his love of the game and he finished a four year career playing number one on West Point's tennis team. And, you know, he's a, just a monster athlete and not only loved what he was doing at West Point, but he loved the discipline. He loved everything about it. 
his tennis game went just gonzo through the roof. He really had, you know, a great experience from it. So not everybody ends up like that. But, you know, when you get just one or two or three athletes that have turned it around like that, it makes all the difference in the world. And, and the, what I like about that story, Dr. Walker, is it makes people realize that tennis, yeah, we consider it an individual sport, but in reality, especially at the the junior and college level, it is a team sport. And your parents are, I mean, we can call it a sports system, but I'd rather call it a team. And everybody's got a role on that team. And it's a matter of making sure the people on that team understand their role in that. Yeah. And, and that, because you're the player, you've got to be the one that's driving the bus. Yeah. You're more or less the CEO, even though you might not be ready for being a CEO, but. Well, but, but, you know, you can be provisional, (laughs) you know, you can start at, Hey, let's try it this way and see how it goes. And, Oh gee, you know, this maybe needs to go this way. This maybe needs to go that way, but you know, there's enough communication, there's enough experimentation that it evolves into those systems that work well. Um, This there's a a program that I'm I'm involved in teaching right now. Uh, I call it Get Competition Ready. It's got six different sections to it. The first one is focused on performing under pressure which every athlete needs to be able to do. They've got to be able to manage their stress load. They've got to be able to direct their attention to the right things at the right times. And, and then they, so that performing under pressure is really an important component. The second thing is I'm really big on self-talk and I'm really big on self-talk from the standpoint of, well, let's look at it. You know, it can be very active. It can be very passive. You know, it can be very focused or it can be random. It can be outcome oriented, which how many guys, do you know, they're playing tennis and they're, you know, they're focused on the outcome of what they want this game to do. Meanwhile, they just lost three points in a row and, you know, they're no longer focused on the outcome. Now they're just trying to hold on for dear life. So, you know, in that shatter that's going on in the mind is kind of dictating a lot of that. I'm really big on people understanding that time travel hurts almost always. Future think, what if this, what if that, what's going to happen next? Never is helpful. Why? Tell me why. Josh, why do you think that is the problem for them? I mean, I think when people are thinking about the future and worry, you know, the, the what ifs, what if I lose this match and my ranking or my in tennis, my UTR goes down or, or the other way, right? What if I win this match? What is that going to do for my ranking? Oh, yeah. Man, well, now what, who do I got to play? Think. Yeah. But, but when you're thinking that way, you're not thinking about those most important things that are within your control that are actually going to influence the result. As you talked about your your attitude, your preparation, your effort. Um, I mean, you could talk about your physical intensity in that moment, but all of that's out the window because that's not where your focus is. Your focus is on 
the future, or maybe it's on the past and whatever happened. I mean, the, the future thing I think is, I think it's probably the worst because it creates uncertainty in your mind. And, you know, when you watch Nadal play and, and he's taking a shot, is there any uncertainty in what he's going to do with the ball? I mean, the ball is off the end of his racket. He, he doesn't even know what he just did. He just did it. But he knew what he was going to do, and there was no hesitation, no uncertainty, no, no aspect of that. And, and the flip side, the coulda, shoulda, woulda, well, let's beat yourself up after you make a mistake. You know? I mean, what good is that? That all that does is destroy your confidence going forward. And that's as equally deleterious. So, you know, I'm I'm really a stickler for that being in the now moment. There was a a, a women's basketball coach, a woman by the name of Pat Summit, who was the coach at Tennessee. And she when she won her sixth, I think it was her sixth NCAA championship, the Alumni club at Tennessee gave her this sterling silver whistle. It had to be worth about four or $5,000, you know? And they kept on wondering, why does she wear this cheap red plastic whistle with a shoestring on around her neck every practice? And she'd say, well, that's the what's important now whistle. And they go, what? <laughs> you know, what, what do you mean? And she would blow that whistle at any point in time on a scrimmage, in a drill, and whatever. And she would yell an athlete's name. And they had less than a second to respond with what their job was on the court right then. And tennis, like basketball, you know, these transitions are like that fast. And, you know, you've got to be able to react on those things. And you've got to know what you're doing. So when people get caught up in this coulda, shoulda, woulda land, that ain't happening. And so, you know, and then is it productive? Is it constructive? Is it helpful? Is it a hindrance? Is it instructive? Can they go back to the fence and think about the plan for how they're going to approach, you know, the next, you know, the next service or the next return of service or the next, you know, series of shots that they want to make or the way they want to change up their rhythm or tempo in the match. And if they can do that, then they're bringing themselves back into control. And that's, that's huge. The, the one other thing that I would add to that, which kind of goes to what we were talking about with, uh, you know, building your team from the inside out, is you do have coaches, you'll have swing coaches, you'll have people that may or may not be really dialed in to the way in which you prepare for things, the way in which you see things, the way you experience things, the way they can, they can observe and understand the chatter that's going on in your mind when you're in the middle of a match. And that is where you as an athlete, as a player, have to coach them up on how you want them to work with you. And so that other aspect of this, we went through performing under pressure and we went through 
self-talk and managing strong emotions. What do you do when you have a meltdown and you're really angry and you want to throw your racket and you're really upset and why did I do that and what the hell's wrong with me and all of that stuff. And, and then you're going into, well, now you got the mental skills like focus, concentration, you know, the, the pre-serve routine, the, the, all of that. And then you've got from there building confidence systematically because I'm such a real stickler for confidence building that it's something that the people that I work with, they have to do this every day. They keep a confidence journal every single day. They've got at least two or three things that they did well in that practice session that they are writing down, that they are reminding themselves up, and they put it in a journal that they're going to review the night before their next big match. And, you know, the best story about this was uh, a gal that I worked with who was a, she was a, a 5,000 meter distance runner and she was running in the Olympic trials and she goes into her night before and she goes to her hotel room and she brings out this spiral notebook that's all dog-eared and ripped up and messed up and she starts pouring through these pages all right and she goes through 196 entries in her confidence journal the night before her race. And she shows up on the starting line the next day because she hadn't competed for a year. She'd had a a patellar tendon injury on the knee and that was an issue for her. But she shows up on that, that next day and she's on the starting line. And instead of doing, whoa, I know that girl, whoa, she's beat me before a bunch of times. And then, oh, oh my God, I'm just this girl from Duluth. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't even belong in this group. And that was what she used to do. Only she goes through her confidence journal and she starts reminding herself of all the work that she put in, of all the training runs that she's done, the tempos that she's done. The, even the competitions that she's been engaged in. And she goes out and she makes her first Olympic team. And the next two days later, she makes the Olympic team in a second event. And so now she's done two Olympic games and graduates to marathon, which who does the marathon? You know, you got to be a little bit, a little bit twisted, you know, if you're doing that. And so she runs, she does the same thing with the confidence journal. She runs through everything the night before and she goes out and she performs running at a five minute and 44 second pace for 26.2 miles. And she doesn't make the cut. She's the fourth runner in the Olympic trials and she doesn't make the team. But rather than being so disappointed in what happened, she went through a race and she realized, you know, I didn't make the team this time, but I made sure these guys deserved it. 
all right? And when you are an athlete and you're able to perform at a level with that degree of competence and that degree of performance savvy, you know, there are no regrets. You know, you did what you did. You laid it all out there. You were on point. You were prepared. You were ready. You reviewed everything that you needed to do in order to put your best effort forward. And that's the kind of stuff that really makes a big difference. And so ultimately, you know, that's what we're looking for. Building confidence systematically. And the last thing is building your team from the inside out. And that means you got to know who you want it on it. You're going to know why you want them on it. You're going to want to know what you want from them while they're on it. You've got to be able to communicate with them in such a way that you are able to convince them that what they want to do for you is be that person for you. And there's a lot of things that go into being able to build the quality of relationships that these people do to be able to execute and create all of that. And that's before the start. You know, this is before the first service. And maybe, you know, somewhere if you've got, you know, different kinds of things that you're doing during a match, but, you know, it's it's a different ball game. So what you guys do and at the level that you guys do it is at a level of expertise that I'm telling you, 95% of the people that play even competitive tennis, they are clueless. They have no idea that that's what it is that's really going on. And if they do discover that, they've got the secret sauce because it changes everything. Now, I'm just, I know I just laid out a whole bunch of stuff (laughs) on you guys, but I really want to get your take on what you think fits and what you think maybe doesn't or, you know, where you see it from your perspective. Because, you know, you're playing with collegiate players. You are coaching these athletes at, at, a, at a very high level or at least, you know, the, the next highest level that they want to be at in order to, you know, to be on the, this world ranking status. So what are, you, what are you thinking here? What jumps out to you? Well, I, I think that I'm on board with the P5 thing. I think that's really some good stuff there, and I like I like having little little models like that. The time travel thing, uh, I will also agree with. I think being in that present moment is is, um, is is super important. I will say though that you know we're having a little bit of a love fest here with Nadal, but to be quite <laughs> honest, uh, the guy does get nervous. And we've seen that in multiple matches, even in this past French Open final. You know, he's these two easy sets against Djokovic. In middle of the third, he starts to do what he often does: is he starts to get a little bit nervous about the finish. The ball starts to go a little bit shorter. Djokovic starts to step in and and, and play better. Now, the great thing about Nadal is he often recovers from that at the business end of the set was, is exactly what he did. Um, but all three of the big three, they all have their tells about what goes wrong mentally for okay. him. It's all right. Can we isolate on that a little bit? Because, you know, you've got guys that will sometimes start out and they'll just be monsters 
you know, in, in the first three games, you know, and, and then, you know, they've got a lead and they want to protect the lead. Oh yeah. And it, it changes the dynamic. Totally. It, it changes the way they look at it. Yeah. And the both, other guy might players. be playing with nothing to lose at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you guys suggest for how you protect against that? So I'll go first and then I'll let Josh do this. I mean, I, for me, I mean, and we run into this all the time. Every time I get the most common things I'll get from parents who call are my player is better in practice than in matches. I'm like, yeah, okay. That's pretty normal. And then uh, he or she has trouble closing out sets, but is great at coming back from when, when he or she is down. <laughs> of course, they don't recognize it's the exact same situation. Just they're playing an opposite role. And of course, I think what's going on from a protect the lead, this is a lot of the future time travel. And we're thinking, and I think this gets more to like Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, loss aversion, we think a little bit more about what we have to lose than what we have to gain. So I talk a lot about how that, that's just a normal part of our process. It's, that's old software, million-year-old software running in your head that has not had an update. And okay. it used okay. to work. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So talk about the update. So the you update. Know, what do you, I mean, Josh, what's your update? What do you, what do you <laughs> see in this that from your perspective is, you know, a key element for turning that. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with Brian and uh, that's, I think it's very common with players I've worked with um, and it's, you know, you're, you're playing well, you get yourself in a good position where you're ahead in a quote unquote, you know, winnable spot, but then you start, then your thoughts start going to what if, to, to what if land to, you know, fast forward mode. Um, you're thinking, you know, what if, what if I lose this match or what if I win this match? I, I, I've talked to players that, and they're thinking, you know, I, I have a certain goal for myself for maybe it's, you know, it's a high school player or a junior player and they want to get to the college level or it's, you know, it, it, whatever their, their goals are, maybe it's a certain ranking level in junior tennis. And they think, okay, if I win this match, then I have my quarterfinal match. And then if I win that, and, and that should be an easy match, right? Because I'm playing this person who I beat the last three times. Um, then I'm going to gain all these ranking points, and then I'm going to move up four spots in the ranking. I'm going to be that much closer to my goal. So they start rather than, you know, and, and this is, the, the match is still going. Maybe they're serving at 5-3, um, that second set. And rather than thinking about, okay, where is this next serve going? How can I set up my best pattern here to put myself in a successful spot? How can I um, make sure that I'm utilizing my routines and uh, doing everything, you know, the, in terms of my mindset, in terms of my strategy, in terms of my effort point in, point out, that's going to give me the best chance. I'm thinking about what my UTR is going to be if I, when I win this match or if I win this tournament. So the, the minute they drop into calculation land, exactly, they're gone. And it happens, I think it happens all the time. And, and I think in college tennis, you know, sometimes that might be, um, you know, how is this going to impact the team? Oh, the, the team is down 
3-1 right now. They really need this point. Or, uh, you know, if I win this match, am I going to move up in the lineup? Or think, or if I lose this match, what does that mean for me in the lineup? Or um, in terms of a USTA ranking, um, am I going to be seated in the next tournament? Am I going to make the next tournament in an ITF or whatever it may be? So I think it's, you know, I think a lot of players are having these thoughts going into a match the night before and even when they're on the court. And I mean, the key is to, you know, come back time after time, not to, not to be unrealistic that these thoughts are never going to occur, but to have the skill set, the tool set to be able to come back to that present moment and to be able to focus again on those things that are within our control, which is, you know, definitely a big theme of this podcast. Um, And, you know, focus on those things that are within our control and can ultimately impact your, your chances of being successful. So here's, here's what I take away from this. And, and one of the tools that I like to use because, uh, you know, there, there, the fundamental difference is when you start to be thinking in terms of outcome. Yep. And, and the minute, the nanosecond, that that thought process shifts to an outcome, you're, you're now lost it. You know, and, and the problem is it turns on a dime. It, it can go so quickly. So in the pre-preparation routines that I think are really critical, you know, that there are uh, scenarios that, let's say you're warming up with your coach and your coach is yelling out a scenario for you. And you have to, just like Pat Summit's red whistle, you know, you're given a scenario, you've got to react to it right then, right there. And that you've got to pull yourself back into the now moment. Now, I'm a big fan, a major believer of using breath work in the way in which I'm breathing. Um, and, And there must be four or five different kinds of breathing techniques that I would use with this. A lot of it is going to depend on, well, am I at a service break? Am I, uh, you know, do I have time? How much time do I have? You know, can I put the towel over my head and, and, you know, can I really just be in my own little world? What, you know, what are the things that I do, whether it's, uh, you know, Jim Lair's, you know, 16 second cure or whatever, but there has to be a mechanism that is rehearsed, that is rehearsed, that is rehearsed, that however many times you need to rehearse it in order to be able to get it so that it works for you at least 60 to 70% of the time. And even then, very rarely are you going to get something that works all the time. All right. But that ability to really isolate on what's going on in the body and redirect what's going on in the body or change the breathing pattern. And, you know, it could be something as simple as, or it could be a centering breath where, you know, you relax your jaw, your shoulders, pelvic floor, hands and feet. And you're just going to kind of be a rubber ball out there for a while. But, you know, these things change 
according to what you see the demands of the task being. And, but if it gets to calculation thinking, then you're maybe already in trouble. It may be too late for you. And, and the other element to that is I'm a major proponent of, particularly in tenants, that you are structuring and making a decision before the very first serve is hit exactly what you're going to do in that game. You know you're going to play that game at a very high pace. You're going to play that game high energy. You're going to go for the corners every time. You know what you're going to do. And your job is to execute just exactly as you plan. Because when you can do that and when you can be on point and when you can be exactly where you need to be when you need to be there and you're, you're, so, you're, you're so on the spot for where you're hitting the ball, you know, whether you're trying to run somebody or whether you're doing baseline shots or, you know, whether you're going down the line, whatever you're doing, you know, the bottom line is it's all planned out. You know, that doesn't mean that your opponent doesn't give you something that you have to take two shots to set yourself up for again. But you know what your goal is. You know what you want to do. That determination makes all the difference in the world. And it enables you to get out of that, um, that vulnerability, uh, what if land or calculation land or protect the lead land or, you know, any one of a number of things like that. That makes sense to you guys. Yeah. And I'd actually break it down into, we should be doing that planning before every point. I mean, if we're going through that, that pre point routine, that should happen to me. That's like in football, a team that doesn't call plays. That's, you know, so that doesn't happen, right? I mean, the quarterback doesn't get into the huddle and say, okay, guys, just go out and do whatever you want. I'll find somebody. It's, there's an actual, you know, whether that's going to be a serve plus one or plus two or return plus one plus two. And that level of thinking, I think, then brings intention to what you want to do. Um, It might be also a pattern. I might say, all right. I'm going to hit my return deep down the middle, and then I'm going to look to go three high balls deep into the backhand and then look for that cross-court ball. Uh, So really, you mentioned earlier about the pros, the top guys, that they're more automatic. I think it's because they have a great sense of their identity as competitors. And Mm -hmm. so they know their patterns. They know how their strengths break down other guys. Yeah, I can. Many of us are trying to still figure that out. Is you know what is my identity, and and how do I kind of make that part of my tennis DNA? And but I'm working that into my pre-point routine. That all right, like for me, you know, I have heavy topspin forehand and a uh, and a lot of slice on the backhand. So I'm using high balls, low balls. I know every point. If I'm leaving the ball in Josh's strike zone, I'm screwed. <laughs> but if I'm making him hit balls over his shoulders and around his ankles. I have a chance. And eventually that can get to him mentally by me not letting him be comfortable. And so that's a that is also a big part is is am I and this is I think where the changeover 
is a big part of the game. Is it a great time to assess, am I playing my game or am I playing my opponent's game? Have I been sucked into what they're doing? And I think, you know, we've talked about with a number of our guests, the difference between playing checkers and chess. When you learn to play chess on the tennis court, A, it's so much more fun, but B, you become just so much of a better competitor. And so I think that, you know, when we're looking at that changeover and that pre-point planning, it's a huge part of what we're talking about is being ultimately prepared. And in the whole aspect of, you know, protecting the lead is obsolete. It, it has no value. It doesn't matter because your focus is so on the execution of what you're doing That's right. that everything else falls by the wayside. And, and well, let's put it this way. The, the best players I've seen are the ones that are able to do that routinely. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and that's how they, you know, really grow so quickly, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, you know, I'm kind of looking at our list here, and I'm looking at... There's one aspect, Dr. Walker, that I would like to ask yeah. you about that um, is, is one of the 12 keys. We haven't totally touched on this, is the idea of imagery and visualization and, and, and how that plays. I mean, that's such a, you know, it can contribute to many aspects of what you've already discussed, but it, it's, it's, it's a key activity. Yeah. Well, um, look, first off, if you can see it in your mind then you can execute it. But you've got to be able to see it in your mind. And a lot of people think that, well, that just happens. You know, uh, I dream about it. <laughs> Why can't I just do it in the daytime? You know, and, and because that is one of the key concerns, um, you know, it, it gets in the way. I, there's a particular form of imagery that I like. And I think I've, you know. The pet lap imagery or? Yeah, it's it's yeah. the pet lap imagery. Look, I'm, I'll ad lib this thing. I generally <laughs> follow the the acronym uh, because it can, there, there are a lot of different features to each component to it. But um, visualization in general, is just you close your eyes, you have a dream, you see in your mind's eye what it is that you want to see. And, you know, you can be playing really well or, you know, you can be practicing a different kind of a shot. You can be executing a scenario and a match. You can do a lot of different things with visualization and, and you can visualize your warm up. You can visualize your fueling the day, the the morning before. You can. There's so many things that you can actually visualize that there's no limit. And and the reason for that is because the mind moves really fast. You know, I mean, I'll ask people, where were you yesterday at this time? 
All right, so I'm looking at where am I right now? Uh, we're at 7:24. What 9:24? You guys, you guys are up late. <laughs> um, and uh, and then I'll ask him. So where are you going to be tomorrow at this time? Oh well, uh, I'm uh, I'm probably going to be on the court, or I'm going to be. Uh, in bed or I'm going to be wherever, but they can project through that visualization process even 48 hours in advance or behind where they, where they are, what they're doing and what form. So that's not a small thing and that shouldn't get lost on people. Uh, just it illustrates so effectively that time travel and that tendency that people have to time travel just in general. You know, people do it all the time. Now, to visualize something that you really want to have happen means that sometimes you may have to work it out where you're initiating the motor skill to make it happen. So, for example, um, one of the legs of the doctoral research that I did at the University of Colorado was I used a flotation chamber that was a dry float chamber that had a video screen on it. And I would watch cyber vision videos of tennis players and skiers and people that would have different highlighted markers on their body so that you could see biomechanically what people were doing when they were actually executing the motor skills for that sport. And <clears throat> I got to where I realized, you know, the float tank was, was one of these things that was heated to skin temperature. There was no um, external stimulation. You know, you, you might be in a, uh, a water bed with a little fabric cover or you might even be in a saltwater tank where you're just floating in the water. But the bottom line is there was no tactile stimulation outside of your body and everything was coming from the inside out. And if, if you ever have an opportunity to do such a thing, I would encourage you to try it at least once, you know, and to see how it may work for you. Now, I don't, I don't see these, cyber vision things anymore, but just the same, the idea of being able to have the internal trip is what it's all about. So the, the whole idea of visualization is being able to direct that process. And when you're in an environment like that, you can initiate a motor movement without any um, resistance at all. And so the body just naturally flows to that position. And so this, this initiation of the motor movement requires maybe, um, you know, maybe one iota of the amount of muscle tension required to initiate the action. So, for example, if I'm running a 10K and I've got my teeth clenched and, and I'm running up a hill and I'm, I'm probably burning upwards of 
600 to 700 microvolts per second, microvolts. This is a unit of energy. And there are a lot of tennis players that will burn themselves out in a match where they're absolutely exhausted. And a lot of it is because they've been using energy that isn't helping them at all at what they want to do. So that recognition that there are times when you need to conserve energy, just as there are times when you need to really exert energy, allows you to be in control of that. But you recognize that either high or low, you are ultimately going to dictate what you're doing. The second thing that I think is useful with respect to that visualization is that the initiation of that very fine motor movement, very subtle, very easy, that starts in the, in the mind and in the brain and the visual cortex of what's happening, leads you to what you want to have happen. It can guide you to the direction for how you want it to unfold, the way in you want the sequence of the events or the sequence of the motor movements to occur. Now, when we get into something that's a little bit more sophisticated, like pet lap imagery, it's like visualization on steroids, you know? I mean, you're dealing with the, you're dealing with the perception, the perspective that the athlete has. You're dealing with the emotionality of what they're experiencing when they're on the court. You're dealing with the time on task that they may take to play a certain certain shot or maybe a series of shots as they're setting up their opponent and they want to put them away. Um, the actual time on task for, you know, you're going to play a match that's three hours long. You know, you better be able to outlast your opponent. You're playing a match where the experiential component of the play can either be joyful, it could be aggravating, it can be really fun, it can be silly, it can be crazy, it can be what, and yet you're in charge of all of that stuff. And then there's the ultimate perspective on the last pet lab, P-E-T-T-L-E-P, where you're looking at the perspective. Are you watching this match as an NBC sports camera is watching you, or are you watching this match from the inside out as you're experiencing your opponent moving from side side to side as you direct them in the places that they want to go? So look, it's not one of those things that people are going to learn how to do even in two months or three months time. But it is something that if they have the discipline to be able to work on it, even in training sessions, that they can't get there. And not only can they get there, once they get there, it, it creates an order of awareness, an order of a perspective and focus and attention and execution that is it's head and shoulders above what you might do just by wanting to see you execute a good shot or there's, see there's, the shot go where you want it to go. Yeah. I think there's actually a couple of points where we can insert imagery into pre point or post point um, routines. So for example, 
one way to handle mistakes is not to talk about it, but is to see, visualize the correction. So if I miss a forehand wide into the alley, I want to see the correction of me hitting my primary target of over the net in a certain spot so that it goes to my secondary target in the court. Now, the next time I get that forehand, I'm much more likely to hit that. Yeah. And I think before the serve, let's say you're serving or even returning, that is a great opportunity there to just see that shot. So part of my pre-serve ritual is to see that shot, but I'm also... This one I haven't read a lot about, Dr. Walker, but I I swear this works for me, is that when I toss the ball up and I'm looking at the back of the ball, I am also superimposing a line that shows the trajectory that I want to hit the ball on. And I simply hit the ball along that path. I can't tell you how much that has improved my first serve percentage. Listen, what you're talking about here has application in, um, I'm working with a volleyball team right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and exactly what you're talking about in the toss of the ball and the execution of the serve is absolutely spot on. There, there's no aspect of that that varies at all, except you're dealing with a tennis ball and a racket and, you know, and you're really trying to come over the top. But the other aspect of that is hockey. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of work with goalies in ice hockey. And these guys, you know, they're going to give up a goal. It's going to happen. Now, what do they do after they give up that goal? You know, they can drop their head. Oh, God, I did that. They can stoop their shoulders. You know, they can feel like, you know, whale dung and that's at the bottom of the ocean. They, whatever they, you know, they're going to feel something. But again, my intention is as much as possible that they don't get caught in the emotion of it at all. That what they do is they're visualizing what happened. What do I need to do to remedy that? How am I going to make that stop next time? What is the position that I need to be in? Maybe I had a bad angle. Maybe, you know, my skate wasn't on the, you know, uh, wasn't on the bar. What, wherever it is, you know, when that attention goes to the fix and they're tuned in to what they need to do to remedy it, then they're there. They're back. You know, they're on it. And that's all we can ask for. And, and I, I do believe that tennis is one of the more emotional sports that athletes get into, you know, because the, the sophistication of the motor skills are, there's just, there's, they're extreme, you know, it's not, you know, the difference between somebody that plays 5-0 and somebody that plays 3-0 is like light years, you know? So, and I, so I got a really strong sense of appreciation for what you're trying to do with them as you're coaching them up because you've got to be mindful of all of these different elements as they come together 
And then you've got to cherry pick what is going to be the best thing that we can do, the first thing that we can do that's going to give the biggest improvement in the least amount of time possible. So you guys got your you got your work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah, we have a lifetime of work, right, Josh? That's that's for sure. That's what we're uh that's why we're trying to, you know, gain insights every week through this podcast. That's 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 a part of it. I mean, you know, between the conversations we're having and the guests like yourself who are coming on and sharing, you know, wisdom and your experiences um with our listeners. There's there's plenty of work to be done and you know, the the more that we can um, you know, dig into that just a bit, I think it's uh yeah, that's what we're going for. Absolutely. I just, uh, I just really appreciate you doing this, and I, I think what a great venue, you know, to create a podcast and have a conversation like this. Where, you know, call me Steve, don't call me Doctor Walker, but you know, <laughs> I, the the whole idea is that you know we are sharing information, we're sharing ideas, we're sharing strategies, we're sharing techniques. We're sharing aspects of those things that have, have worked for us, or maybe they were an abysmal mistake for us, but we learned from them and we're able to incorporate them going forward. So I just really appreciate you guys having me on and, uh, you know, and hope it was valuable to you. For sure. I mean, it was a sincere pleasure. And, um, you know, if Josh and I think of another topic that we, think you'd be great to consult on we'll let, we would love to have you back on and thank you steve this help is, me in yeah this is a blast and yeah thanks for your time we we really do really do appreciate it and i'm sure our uh listeners got a lot of a lot of great uh nuggets out of that and uh we we really appreciate your time yeah. thanks i you know i uh for if i will i'm going to go ahead and do a little plug here Absolutely. Um, if anybody wants uh, the 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 pre-performance routines booklet that we were talking about before, um, they're going to need to send me an email, and in uh, that email is going to go to doc d o c at uh, dr and that would be d r Stephen with a p h walker.com and um and then just ask for what you want i i really would like to have you know an email and a phone number and contact information and just the kinds of things that will help me be able to track it down also i will point out one thing that on that website um drstevenwalker.com um i have various assessments that i use that people are welcome to, I'll give them one, you know, you can, you can try out one of them, but then we have a conversation about it because the battery that I use when I'm evaluating athletes is, is probably nine, nine uh, assessment tools that look at self-talk and cognitive distortions and, you know, uh, mental skills, performance assessment, and things like that. But it's also, I have a tennis specific one too, that, you know, they have to examine 
how do they feel in their confidence level for being able to execute a certain kind of shot or a certain way that they want to play. And, and then from there, um, you know, we set up a conversation and go from there and see, see if it looks like it's something that would fit. That's great. But we'll, we'll, we'll make sure we put that uh, info in the show one, description. Too. One more thing. Yes. There is a lot of tennis material on a, it started out as a blog 12 years ago, and now it's taken on a life of its own. And it's called podiumsportsjournal.com. And if you care to, uh, it's freely accessible. Everything from pre-performance routines to, you know, how to assess what happened, you know, you'll, you'll get some useful stuff from it. So uh, I would love to uh, have you guys around and get to know some of your people better. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Podium Sports Journal has got a lot of good stuff. I think you've been doing a series lately that maybe we could talk about another time. The, the requisites to greatness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That would be actually yeah. a pretty cool. We have another, uh, another, um, another episode of that coming yeah. out either tomorrow or the next day. Awesome. Well, I look forward to reading that. All right, you guys. Thank you, Thank Steve. Thank you all. Appreciate you that. All right. Well, Josh, that was a wide-ranging conversation that I hope everyone got some tips from. I know I did. Uh, the concept that I liked a lot was this idea of, of P5 thinking, which is, you know, thinking purposefully, thinking productively, thinking of possibilities, thinking passionately, and with also a, a positive frame of mind, which... I think he was more relating, not just being like thinking positively, but more about growth mindset and the ability that we, that we, so that's something that, uh, that really stuck with me. What was, um, a point that stuck with you from the interview? Yeah, well, there was, uh, certainly a lot. Um, I think one of the biggest things, um, that he touched on is, uh, this concept of utilizing a confidence journal. Um, I think this is something that certainly, um, tennis players, all sorts of performers, um, can benefit from um, where you're contributing to this uh, confidence journal every time you uh, perform, wh- whether that's um, a practice or a, a match, um, but just noting down these things that you do well or that you did well in that particular day. And then it's, you know, being able to look back at that the night before or, you know, on the bus to, um, to the match um, or whatever it may be right before the match um, and uh, getting that added boost of confidence um, really when you need it most. Um, well, that's our show for today. Um, once again, many thanks to Steve Walker for joining us today on the Tennis IQ podcast. For more on today's show, please uh, check out the show notes below. Um, if you have any feedback or questions for us, you can email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Um, additionally, please subscribe to the show on your platform of choice, um, including YouTube so that you can be notified of new episodes and check us out on Instagram as well. Thanks again. And we will talk to you soon in our next episode.